0: Hello and welcome to that tech show the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Good morning Chris.
1: Good morning Sam. It's good to hear that you're not stumbling over that intro. Do we need to do we need to tighten it up a bit?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've said it so many times now I've uh, it is I say it in my sleep I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you wake up in the morning isn't it? <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> with a with a fright. But uh, how was, how is your weekend? How did you do anything for bonfire night?
1: Uh, I listened to the fireworks going off, but I was working. Oh. I was working. Oh. You could only you dream.
0: Well, I will say, I, uh, you know, we were talking last night, uh, or yesterday, with a friend, and it was sort of like, once you see one set of fireworks, you've kind of seen them all, to be fair, right? We all kind of agreed that um, they went to Ali Pali for it. and um, But I, I didn't see any fireworks for the 5th of November, but I did see fireworks on Halloween night. And I was lucky enough to be overlooking a park uh from a balcony where the uh, where there was a bonfire and lots of fireworks going off for Halloween and i have to say i was mesmerized by this quite you know reserved little firework display um i can't, can't couldn't say how many people were there but i don't think a tremendous amount of people it was in stockwell and it was a fantastic firework display i shed a tear i didn't <laughs> shed a tear but i wish i did it would it would have uh, been testament to the amazing work of the stockwell firework display coordinators whoever those display are department. So, yeah.
1: is, is there an official There's display a, department probably i don't know but it was <laughs> it was
0: great we all just like were mesmerized and uh, and then the night pursued and halloween continued
1: i have to say i'm not as much i mean i i loved fireworks when i was a kid but these days i'm not a fan actually i don't i don't enjoy going and watching them i think i've had too many pets to who mm. were terrified by them, you know, yeah. and especially in well, I think there's a couple of things with London, right? You know, you there's fireworks going off all the time. Like I don't mm. know if if anybody else <laughs> uh, outside of London experiences this, but like fireworks are always going off in London, and I don't know why that is.
0: Mm. My mum told me when I was younger that actually some people like to put their relatives' ashes into fireworks, and that you're basically being sprinkled with dead people ashes. So I don't know how true that is, but...
1: Well, you know, parents say these things to you as a kid, and they get stuck in your head, don't they? Like, my mum always told me, don't kick a pile of leaves, because there might be a hedgehog in them. And now I can't kick a pile of leaves. I think that's a joy that I've missed out on
0: you've ruined kicking piles of leaves to me to be fair yeah that's uh, that's very true i mean i don't know how many hedgehogs are in the middle of london actually they're quite quite suburban creatures but um yeah no i i, I well, they're endangered
1: species i don't think it's because they've been high, high um i don't think they're fully endangered but you know they're a rare species these days mm-hmm. they are uh, they don't want to be kicked well, I don't think it's because they've been hiding in piles of leaves that <laughs> they've become, uh, become more endangered. But, you know, it, it definitely ruined it for me.
0: Well, someone's just arrived to the office. I'm just going to let them know. I'm recording a podcast intro right now, so I'll, uh, I'll wrap up soon. <laughs> Say hello to the podcast people, Bobby. I don't know Where's whether you call that. But that's Bobby.
1: Ask Bobby when he's going to be on the show.
0: Uh, when are you going to be on the show, Bobby.
1: question when i have
0: something when you choose a topic for me to talk about i guess when he's a millionaire
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um well i have some good news my my laptop is due to arrive today my new um uh macbook pro so i'm very much looking forward to that
1: we're looking forward to seeing the power of the m1
0: yeah and also i'm i'm going to i'm going to set a challenge for the listeners and uh if they can tell which episode that i record my uh complete podcast audio on just with the microphones there then we'll give them i don't know a, a pack of cookies or something i don't know A pack of cookies we'll do That's some, good. something good something deal. nice
1: yeah i was going to ask that. how you were going to do that but it's because you're going to use the microphone on the on the laptop mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. Good. that'd be interesting really good. anyway go, who, have we,
0: who have we got on the show today then sir? This week on the show, we have Emily Bache. Now, Emily Bache is a rare breed, a technical agile coach. She has a strong background as a software developer and has used her talents as a polyglot and her particular passion for test-driven development to teach and help others to write better software. Emily doesn't just share this information face-to-face. She has a Pluralsight course, a blog called Coding is Like Cooking, and a few books to her name. Emily talks to us about her coaching method she's developed and published in her most recent book Technical Agile Coaching with the Saman Method
1: Okay, sounds great
0: And this week we have another competition where we'll be giving away a copy of Emily's book All you need to do is follow the link in the description And we'll be announcing the winner on next week's episode So get your entries in now
1: Great, well that sounds like it's time to get over to Emily then
2: Emily Bache. I'm a technical agile coach with ProAgile and I live in Sweden.
1: Cool. So what exactly is ProAgile? Because I don't think I've heard of that before.
2: Oh, it's just, it's the company I I work for.
1: Oh, okay.
2: We're a bunch of agile coaches, basically. And um, my focus is much more on the, the code and the developers and how to make that happen in the best way.
1: Are you quite a large consultancy? Or a small consultancy? There's like
2: 15 of us or something. But uh, it's a a really, really skilled uh, bunch of people. And I really appreciate, because I learn stuff about organizational coaching and process coaching and and professional coaching, because my colleagues are really good at those things. But really, my focus is on the the code and the the technical side of software development and making that effective.
1: So I think we've got relatively similar backgrounds to a degree then, because one of my previous roles was working for a for an agile consultancy, a small one, about 15 people in the UK. Oh, right. <laughs> and I tended to focus a little bit more on the technical side as well. So what, what's your uh, perspective of a, a technical agile coach in this instance?
2: Well, I kind of feel that it's it's often overlooked. A lot of organisations, when they realise their software development needs to be more agile, they'll focus a lot on the process in the organisation and the, like the <clears throat> what the teams are supposed to do in terms of meetings and, and how they plan work and stuff. But as far as I'm concerned, the, the really difficult and important part is, is the way you write code needs to change as well. And I was a, quite an early adopter, I guess, of things like test-driven development and refactoring. And I've always found that to be the, the most interesting part, really. So that's the, the part that I tend to, to focus on more.
1: So when did you start picking up like test-driven development and things like that? And when you did, were you aware that that was part of Agile at the time? I mean, how did you sort of come into it? You're coming from a developer route, is that right?
2: Yeah, so I've, I've uh, been a software developer since 98. And I was, I was very lucky, actually. In 2000, I landed on a project where somebody had heard of extreme programming and suggested that we should, uh, you should use that. And the people on my team were very much more experienced and skilled than I was. We picked up like writing unit tests quite quite quickly and quite easily on that project, and from then on I was hooked basically.
1: so back in 2000, what sort of what, what sort of languages were you were you writing in and how extreme did extreme programming feel in 2000?
2: <laughs> oh yeah this this uh, this was extreme well it was it was everything was new for me because I'd just moved to Sweden. It was my first job in Sweden in 2000 and it was a startup and it was we were using Java actually. Um, although I'd been doing Java before, and just this kind of uh, idea of of these really short iterations and delivering stuff and getting feedback from we didn't have a a real customer, I guess, because we were a startup. We didn't have any customers. know
1: that feeling, yes.
2: yeah but we uh, we had you know we had a, a a proxy customer who looked at what we did and and gave us feedback. And you know the, I think the main parts that of the XP we were doing was the uh, the programmer practices. And the planning, and that all felt pretty radical compared with what I was doing. Well, the, my previous job had been much more kind of ad hoc developments, and the job before that had been very much big process, a shelf full of binders showing what the process was. You know, so uh, it, XP was was very different from anything I'd done.
1: And how how quickly did you get on board with things like doing test driven development? Is that you started that at the same time? That was, or was it just paired programming and things like that?
2: Yeah, it was pair programming. I learned yeah. so much from the pair programming just from pairing with these really experienced developers. But I mean, the, the, the word test driven development wasn't really invented at the time. I mean, that Kent's book, Test driven development by example, I think it came out in 2002, um, something like that. So it was just unit testing when I started. And because it was Greenfield development, a new product, actually, because we were building it testable from the start, it actually was not as difficult. Because I think that's, that's the thing that I've been battling with ever since. Basically, when you're working with a code base that hasn't been built with tests, it's quite difficult to add them afterwards.
1: Yeah, the retrofitting is a little bit cumbersome.
2: Yeah, it's more challenging than building them in the first place. So I think I had a quite an easy route into it in the way.
1: You mentioned the timeline. I suppose with two thousand and two being the the naming of TDD. I suppose. And it, I think it's 2001 when Scrum and things like that came out, or, or the Agile Manifesto came out. So did did things change for you then if you'd, if you'd been exposed to that sort of way of working? Like a lot of the stuff you're talking about is a lot of the stuff that we associate, I think, with Agile. So when you heard about Agile for the first time, did it sort of solidify things for you? Or was it like, oh, I've already been doing that because I've been doing XP? Yeah,
2: well, it was... It was exciting, of course, that suddenly all these these people who I had read read their books, and I was like, "Wow, they've come up with this thing. This is important." Uh, the manifesto, and I'm like, "Yeah, I agree with all of this. <laughs> this is great. This is how it should be done." And then, actually, um, it was a year later, XP two thousand and two. I went to this conference in um, Sardinia, and I met Kent Beck and Martin Fowler and Michael Feathers and the Poppendiecks and a bunch of all these people who'd been there and written the manifesto and. And there was a, I remember a keynote with Ken Schwaber who was saying, "Oh, we, we're going to take over the world." And I was still sitting there thinking, "Wow, he's ambitious." And now, <laughs> you know, and then he did. <laughs> yeah. Took over the world. I was like, "Wow." So yeah, it was very exciting to be in that sphere. I mean, I was kind of on the fringes. I'd just read some books and I met a few people at the conference. But it was very exciting to to be there and and to see the the start of something really big and new in our industry. Yeah, it made a big impression on me.
1: That's really interesting, though, because if you thought, you know, I can imagine someone coming out with something entirely new like that uh, and being there, it must have seemed quite ambitious, to use your exact word, that they wanted to take over the world. Did you think that you have any idea that they were going to do it? Did you think it was that powerful? Or? No,
2: I really didn't. I wow. was like, wow, this guy, I mean, he gave a very good keynote. He was very um, enthusiastic and and convincing. And I was like, well, I guess maybe he'll do this. But at the time, it was such a small small thing, agile. I mean, there was like this conference with 150, 200 people. And uh, my experience of, of doing the unit testing and the refactoring and the pair programming and all of that said to me, this is a much better way of developing software than anything I did before. Um, this has got to be the way forward. But I kind of, it was hard to, at the time, believe that this was going to be the future of the industry. And then, of course, the Scrum took over so much that, that all these technical practices just didn't get talked about to the same extent
1: yeah do you think though with xp having existed before that it needed to have more of a process management transformation type approach to it for the software engineering to kind of come along with it if you know what i mean yeah i think there's a lot of
2: reasons xp didn't didn't make it big time and uh, i think there's been a lot of analysis of that and I'm. I just. I mean, it's a. It's a shame, but that it that it hasn't been more popular because it's so needed. You you can't do agile without the technical practices, not long term at least, because you just the code quality just degrades if you if you don't pay attention to it. Um. I think one mistake XP made. Of course, everyone talks about the name of it being a bit. It, it attracts early adopters, but it turns off mainstream people. <laughs> and uh, and also the fact the role of the manager in XP is kind of basically buying food. And uh, asking everyone if they're okay, uh, whereas you know, as managers, you've got to actually embrace this stuff as well.
1: That's not too too dissimilar from the role of a scrum master, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> having played that role, having played that role, I uh, I went away for um for for a week, I think, once in in one of my early teams when I was a scrum master, and I came back and there was an empty plate of cake. And a whiteboard leant up against my desk and he said, oh, we thought we could replace you with a cake and a whiteboard (laughs) because that's all you're doing, isn't it? You're providing morale and organisation. Great. (laughs) Thanks for that, guys. Much appreciated.
2: Yeah, (laughs) Oh, maybe. But I I think um, Scrum was a lot better at talking to managers about their role and and realising that that was important, actually.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that's probably what's driven it, isn't it? That, you know, that sort of proliferation of Scrum and, and Agile is probably everybody kind of knows what it is, I suppose, now, because it, it's, you don't have to be technical to understand how to develop the software so much. And I think the teams, you know, I mean, I'm only thinking of, over, um, over my career, which isn't as long as yours, that, you know, it feels like the, uh, the management teams these days are more involved, at least in the successful organisations, more involved in the tech, technical side than they ever used to be. I think IT used to feel as this thing that sat on the side that did a thing that we didn't quite understand, and now it feels like it's certainly more integrated. In at least some of the successful companies, have you seen similar? Yeah,
2: yeah, I recognise that. That you know, the, the the companies that are doing well with this realise that software is the business to a much larger extent than it was before. So you've got a You've got to integrate it with with the business.
1: So, in in your role, where you're being a technical um, a technical coach, are you usually brought in when a transformation is already sort of started, it's been sold, or are you actually coming in to do some of the due diligence and try and figure out, you know, is is this a thing that we can sell? It's needed, etc.
2: Um, no, I I think it's that the the, uh, the consulting i've been doing is is mostly where companies have already got an agile initiative they've they've done scrum training they've they've organized themselves into teams they're doing all the planning stuff and they've realized that they realize that you need the technical side that actually code quality is is important and um developers need skills in writing tests and doing refactoring and all this stuff so so that's where i come in basically
1: it's of, i mean it's often a bit of a gap i think that's left behind isn't it the organization will start trying to change its process. And I think actually having done it before, they will get some benefit from, from the process to your point just before, but they will run out of room if they start cutting corners. Because I, I do think if it's implemented incorrectly, like an agile transformation, you can lend, your, lend yourself to, ju- you're just going to cut corners all the time and you're just going to check in stuff that doesn't have as high a quality. Is, is your day-to-day sort of fixing <laughs> Agile processes? <laughs> is that is that where you spend most of your time? Like going, well, you, you've probably cut a couple of corners here and we, we need to put the corners back on. <laughs> um,
2: well, it's not so much the process that I, I go in. I talk to the developers. I know that as a developer, my life is so much happier when the code is is well-designed and I can understand it and it has tests and I get quick feedback when I make changes. That, that makes development is so much more fun in that situation. So that's usually the starting point with developers. Like, are you having fun in your code? <laughs> are you getting, are you feeling productive? Are you, are you able to make the changes you need to make and not being, you know, finding bugs all the time? And because fixing bugs is not half as fun as building new stuff.
1: And, and how often is the answer yes? I am having fun. <laughs> uh,
2: occasionally, I mean, I do meet teams like that, and and um, and then my job is is great, basically to encourage them to carry on doing what they're doing and write more tests. Uh, but a lot of the teams I go to, it's like, yeah, our build takes twenty minutes, or you know. Um, we we get bug reports all the time, and we keep people shouting at us, you know. <laughs> so, so it's much more than it's like okay, right. Let me show you some things. Let's see if we can speed up this build. Let's see if we can add a few tests here. Let's see if we can rewrite these tests that are too slow and and don't support refactoring. And so, it's part of it is just kind of finding out where the team is, what the biggest problems are, and and working out which. Of all the technical practices I know would be most useful for these this team and then trying to train them to use them.
1: How often does it feel like a, an open door to those conversations? And how often do you have to sort of work
2: at it? I'll definitely have to work at it. I mean, every team is is different it, some, at some level. And every team has, I mean, people are, have experienced, they've been at the organization for many years and it can be difficult for people to admit that they they need to learn new things or that, that they've got into trouble that they can't get themselves out of. And there's a lot of uh, the technical coach role is just really trying to be, have empathy with the developers and understand where they're coming from and have a productive discussion with them to try and persuade them that actually you can change things. You can learn new things. This would be useful to you it would make your life better. So there's a lot of, of that as part of the role.
1: So it's interesting that you, saying, you were saying about starting with, you know, are you having fun? You know, in terms of then getting to like some sort of metrics that under, underpin all of that, you know, I, I've come across a lot of teams that they have, you know, you, you say, well, you know, how, how much test coverage have you got? And the answer is, oh, you know, some, because they actually haven't got a number. And, uh, you know, they maybe don't have any other metrics of like how well their system is performing or how slow the build is you know or or fast (laughs) You don't necessarily know um so do is that is that where you sort of go next after fun to go after metrics or do you do you take a different route
2: i'm not very good at metrics i i know it's important and i know that it's the i probably should pay more attention to that and i there are useful metrics that you can you can come up with i mean build time is one of the ones i have used actually but uh the, uh, the four key metrics in the Accelerate book, uh, ones that I would encourage the organisation to go after because I think they're hard to game all four of them at once. So I think there there should be metrics. I'm just not really paying attention to them. <laughs> it's, it's something I probably need to be better at because it's the kind of thing managers like to see when you've gone in and done some coaching. They want to see it's made a difference. And the thing is a lot of those metrics are trailing trailing effects you know it's it's a long time after you've uh, done something that you actually see an impact on the you know some measurable difference in the number of bugs comes a bit later than the the efforts to improve the code quality
1: so if it's not after if the first thing is fun then where, where is the next bit that you go where, where do you sort of is it do you go to the builds do you go to the ci piece or do you go in looking for tests i mean where, where do you where do you start
2: I go to the, so the when I first meet a team, I ask them to show me their some samples of of test code that they they are proud of uh, or production code that you're proud of and some test code that they're less proud of and some production code they're less proud of. So we, I usually start with a code review and talking through with them what I see in their code. And I also ask them about the build time as well because that's so important. If you're trying to do refactoring, you need a quick build. Um, and if it's slow, then I have to, Look at that first, and then I also talk to them more generally about what problems they're seeing in in their uh, in their life. And uh, often we get we throw up problems around the process and the the way tasks are being given to them and lack of access to the customer. And those things, I'm like, yeah, these are all important, but I'll go and talk to their scrum master or their process coach about that because. They're so much better at that. <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I can do code, I can do uh, tests and design and talk to developers, but you know, the whole organisation stuff, I'd like to leave that to someone with, with a better sense for that.
1: But I think this is what you. I think this is what you need because I think that the technical agile coach is the is, is the role that's probably most often forgotten, actually yeah uh, you know you, you, there's there's uh, a- agile coaches some of, of which are probably listening hello um you're ten a penny there's loads of you <laughs> but but it's the um it's the it's the technical people that you know and that relationship with the technical person um you know i've known i know from having been an agile coach and not necessarily focusing on the technical side at that particular moment in time. You've got to go and try and find the technical person who might be able to help you with this journey, who might know a bit more about the code. And I think if you've got a dedicated role like what you're doing, I think that's um, that's critical, really, to having a successful transformation, I would say.
2: I'm so glad you said that because I totally agree.
1: <laughs> well, I think it makes the most sense. I mean, because I mean, even the things that you're saying about like... Um, the, the developer not having access to the customer. I mean, that really resonates because, you know, one of the things developers really do need to know is what they're building for and the customer experience. You know, I think if you're focusing on the customer experience, then you're going to deliver a better product because you have to think about how it's going to behave, how it's going to be used.
2: Yeah, and you have to feel that your job is is worthwhile. I mean, that's when I ask developers what makes their job fun, and one of the top things that always comes out is, you know, I feel... It's fun when I feel I'm building something that matters to the users, something that's important. And, you know, and that's what you get from contact with the actual people using your software is finding out that it actually does matter that I do a good job. And that really motivates developers.
1: When when you've done a a good job, when you feel like you've had the, uh, you know, you've you've got the developers uh, to where you want them. To be I mean what does what does that look like for you because I mean like you've got your your blog as well, which is code is like which is great so there's lots of stuff on that like are you want how much of that stuff that you that great stuff that you've got in there are you wanting to see developers sort of embodying?
2: oh wow um well when i've when I've done some coaching I'm expecting that they'll they'll write. They'll be much more confident writing good unit tests um, or component tests. Sometimes you're working in a situation where unit tests aren't the right choice and it's better to have slightly bigger, more component tests. I'm expecting them to, to commit code more often. You know, I, I try and give them a, a culture of, of committing code every few minutes. Um, at least once an hour, you know, they're, they're committing some code and pushing it so that there's a, a constant stream of small changes coming into into the code the wider code base. Um, I'm expecting them to be more confident refactoring, to make less mistakes refactoring, and more more of a healthy attitude of let's do a little and often refactoring. Oh, yeah, and just the, the collaboration techniques in the team. So I usually work with teams rather than individuals. And because I get more bang for my buck if I'm kind of working with the whole team rather than just pair programming one person at a time. But in order to collaborate with the whole team programming together, um, there's a number of communication techniques and things that that I would hope that they'd learn to make that effective
1: so how, did, how do you do that then to do like collaboration across the whole team do you, I, do you mean like have you I presume you've done sort of like training sessions then where you've got all of the developers together for a team is that yeah
2: this uh, idea of ensemble working or or it's also called mob programming where you have some roles you have one person at the keyboard who's the typist and then this role of navigator who's Um, communicating in an effective way with the typist to um, explain what code to write and rotating the roles and what to do when you're not the typist or the navigator and how to support them. So there's a whole um, body of knowledge now about how to do that effectively. Woody Zool was one of the uh, initial pioneers in this area, and there's a lot more people since have also followed this up. And Yeah, so that's a technique I use a lot when I'm coaching.
1: Yeah I've never done that I wouldn't know, I would, I don't know if I'd know where to start with more than like one or two people how well do people sort of um adapt to that process because that must be a little daunting for people because also as well, developers are so often like, no, no, this is my homework and I'm, you're not going to see it until I've checked it in and I'm ready for a pull request. Or sometimes you're just never going to see it.
2: <laughs> right. No, it's true. It's it's very different from the way programmers generally worked before, unless they've done a lot of pair programming. It's usually easier if, if people have done some pair programming. So I've I've tried various ways to introduce it to teams and what I'm trying at the moment is a more kind of formal program where I, you know, teach the skills and explain what the skills are and then we go and do some practice on an exercise and then we come back and talk about how it went and what communication patterns we saw and how we could improve them and kind of iterate um, so that's it's a kind of like a more of a training course that I'm trying at the moment before that I just would try and launch into it and just be the facilitator and try and explain as we went along and I had some success with that uh, but I think probably setting this up as a, a training might might work better and I know a lot of teams that have just tried it, just got all together in a meeting room and, or a virtual meeting room and just tried it. And I've heard quite mixed reports about how well that's gone.
1: <laughs> what was the what was the, the successful one and what was the worst one if we pick the extremes from those reports?
2: <laughs> <Right>. Also, the, <laughs> the worst cases are when, you know, the team's got no, you know, somebody's read some blog post or other and the rest of the team has no idea what they're doing and somebody is basically typing and no one's saying anything and then then occasionally a timer rings and they're like oh we have to swap now um and it doesn't really you you don't capture the spirit of of what it's supposed to be like
1: it sounds like a bad game of twister or something (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: yeah so uh, i think if you're going to try it you should really at least read up on it a bit and try and get some advice and preferably find someone who knows what they're doing to facilitate so I think uh, the best experiences I've had is when the team is already really gelled. They know each other very well and they already have done some pair programming. So um, I'm thinking of one particular team I came in and they took to it so quickly. I just had to kind of prompt them and explain the, little, the roles. And it didn't take more than a few days before, I, you know, they were having fun. It was code being produced and they were learning stuff from one another. And so it can work without much, uh, much input from me.
1: When, when you start that do you do you pick a program a problem that the the organization actually has or do you pick up with like um like like some sort of defined problem like a kata or something like that
2: yeah so what I'm doing now with the training in ensemble working is we're doing cartas um just to take off the table that, that difficulty of understanding the problem and what code to write because code carters generally a very straightforward piece of code to write but uh what I've been trying to do is is take a problem from that organisation and because that's the the coaching I do I try and do a combination of teaching with code cutters um, and hands on in their code with the ensemble and I get them to pick uh, something from their backlog I tell them it has to be it has to involve writing code or tests or both it can't just be kind of investigating or writing documents or something.
1: That would be very boring, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. (laughs) We're all going to write a document together. Actually, I have done that. I have done that. It's not fun. (laughs) It
2: could be a good use for an ensemble, but it's not really my first choice, at least. Um, So uh, we try and pick something from the backlog that actually is involving writing some code, developing something, and isn't too urgent so that the product owner isn't going to be breathing down their necks to get it done quickly so that we can actually spend some time on it and work through um, learning about the ensemble and, you know, I'll try and walk them through, okay, let's do this task with TDD. Or if it's it's not feasible to do TDD, it's like, okay, let's do some refactoring and try and get this code to a state where we could write some tests. Let's try and learn something about safe refactorings that we can do here, just leaning on the compiler or, or on the, whatever test they've got.
1: You know, with the, with the kata's as well, I just want to return back to that for a second. So for, for people who don't know, that's sort of a... Well, actually, do you want to describe to, to us what, you, what your interpretation of a kata is?
2: Right. So it's a, a term that was coined by um, Dave Thomas. was uh, watching his son practicing karate and the way that they do these kind of um, sequence of moves to, to learn a form, get the, the muscle memory. And he was like, well, we, we should do that with code as well. There's some certain, you know, coding problems that everyone should know how to solve that that have a standard. And and it's not so much the solution you come up with, it's the way you solve it in small steps with tests, um, and that's what you should be practicing. The form, the the movements to get to the not so much the end result. So uh, a cut is usually a description of a small coding problem that you could probably code in an hour or two or three, and you you repeat it, and each time you do it, you try and focus on how you're solving it not not the solution so much you're coming up with and so
1: obviously you're going to be using them for training people but like do you actually just you know take yourself to one side and do a cutter
2: yeah um yeah although having said that often I'm I mean I've got a certain uh, few, two or three four cutters that I really come back to a lot and I'm also using the same ones in my training but they're ones that I were like okay let's let's do this cut I need to to do this in a different programming language, or uh, I need to to learn about this refactoring technique. I think this would be a good Carter to practice that on. You know that.
1: That's interesting that you talk about the refactoring technique. So, do you do carters where you basically undo things?
2: So the classic form of a Carter is building up something from scratch. Mm.
1: That's what I'm familiar with. Yeah. Yeah,
2: but there's refactoring CARTAs where you start with some horrible-looking code, and you have to make it possible to uh, add new features to it. And I've, um, and that's, if you look on my GitHub page, I've got a lot of refactoring carters that, yeah, some of which I've designed and some of which I've just found from places. Well, I was
1: going to say, where'd you get the horrible looking code? <laughs> <first? laughs>
2: yeah, well, it, it varies. Um, Some people just put these things out there and say, look, and they do them as demos at a conference or whatever, or in their, their training materials, and you can practice on them. And some of them uh, have been inspired by real horrible code I've worked on. <laughs> um, uh, where I've I've looked at this, you know, real horrible code, where I've had to work on it and not been satisfied that I've had the techniques I needed to really tackle it. So I've kind of tried to design an exercise with some of the same features, so I can try and do better.
1: Because I've always aspired to, you know, I love the idea of a kata, and uh, I've I've used them for for training as well. Not I don't think nearly as extensively as as you've done clearly. Um, and I'd never done the refactoring one, but I think what I've tried to do is every now and again I'll go, I'll I'll try and I'll just do that problem again. And I've not done as many problems as I should do. And I I would love to get into a position where you where you do it like a you know a a martial arts cutter where you know it's the start of your session. You know if I could get to like a little fifteen minute segment that I could do in the morning, you know just as a a little routine. But I haven't necessarily found anything yet that I can do that is a complete thing rather than a a segment. If you know what I mean, like I'd like to do a little small complete thing in in like fifteen minutes as a warm up almost. Have you ever done anything like that?
2: I mean, I'm I'm thinking about that. I mean, I demo TDD a lot using code carters. and you know, there are so like leap years that that is a carter you can TDD in in just a few minutes. It's quite small. The piece of code you end up with is like one line of code and four tests. So uh, that's the one that I, I've had to do a lot of times because each team I meet practically is using a different programming language, so I have to learn to do that cartoon, to demo TDD in a different language. So that's something that I do quite a lot. And and the next one up is FizzBuzz, which is...
1: Oh, I've done many, many buzzes. <laughs> yeah, I've done that a lot as well. I try to do that one in different... Um in different styles to solve it in different ways. I think I, I, I put something up on my GitHub where I think I'd done FizzBuzz in about five different ways and I wrote it in Node and I wrote it in C Sharp and actually had timers in it so I could see which one was faster yeah. and do the comparisons between them. I don't think I've done that exactly as a catter yet, but I've done it a lot of times just to try and tweak it and see if I can get a certain thing faster or not, just actually to see, you know, which was a more effective programming language for what I was trying to do, you know, and obviously FizzBuzz is just an example, but I wanted to see which one was actually going to be genuinely faster.
2: Yeah, I mean, that sounds exactly like how you should use a code cutter.
1: (laughs) Maybe I just need to put some tests around it there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, you should have some tests, definitely.
1: Well, I was going off Fred George's advice that if you're writing like 10 lines of code and it doesn't work, then you shouldn't be writing code. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: no, I mean, there's some truth in that. But of course, the reason I'm doing it is to practice TDD most of the time. Oh, absolutely. And then just by taking a problem that is so easy that you could solve it without TDD, then you're learning how to do tdd rather than learning how to solve a problem
1: well i think that's the important thing isn't it learning how to do tdd because so often i come across organizations that say they do tdd and they're not actually doing tdd you know they're, they're throwing the tests in at the end or um they're not really writing the tests first they've found some way around it
2: <laughs> yeah although i mean to be fair i think i i'm not one of these people who say oh, you're not doing tdd you didn't write the test first It's a discipline that when you're first learning TDD, you should absolutely write the test first and you should write all the tests and make sure you have tests for everything. But once you've learnt what it is TDD is giving you, then you can be more flexible and you can probably get that without being quite so strict. It turns into fast feedback loops and being aware of the testability of your design at all times and what state you're in, whether you're refactoring or whether you're adding functionality so i i don't know, I don't like that kind of um kind of being judgmental and, and going in and saying you're not doing t d d it's like
1: well it's it's interesting because I think you know if if you take like the front end so I think it's it, it's really important to obviously have like you know a, a huge amount of tests on the front end but if you're um if you 've got the web browser open and you're writing your code and you're hitting you, or you 've got like a hot reload or you're at least refreshing whatever it is that you're writing and then you're immediately testing it in the actual web browser or you know, an Android device or an iPhone emulator or whatever it is, then you are kind of are doing some sort of test-driven development. But the thing that we want to have at the end is some sort of artifact
2: that we could repeatedly run. <laughs> exactly. No, that, that's, it's fulfilling your need for feedback at the time while you're developing, and that's great. It means you can work in small steps and, and, yeah. But you do need that artifact as well afterwards that, that gives you the regression test safety how you fit that into that process is, you know, it needs to fit into that process. You need to not just kind of, oh, I'm done now and oh, but I haven't written the test. Oh, you know, it's, it's got to be part of what you're you're building as well, the test and the code. Do you
1: try and have like, um, like build the tests up so that they can be used in a wider context? Like, you know, for, for when we're talking about like how you would then have them as a regression pack or for integration tests or for all those sort of things, like do you try and have a, a sort of cascading size of tests?
2: Oh, so you're talking test strategy here. What kinds of tests? How big? How much code do they test? What tools to use? Yeah. Oh, that, I mean, it depends. Classic consultant answer. <laughs> of course it depends. But yeah, you you um, you need to try and find a good trade-off between the test being fast and being cheap to maintain, um, and also testing something that is significant. Um, preferably related to what the user would be interested in. So uh, unit tests are very good on the fast and cheap axis usually, um, but they're often so small that they don't really find the kind of things the customer cares about. I quite often go for a slightly larger unit where, uh, where I can. I often use a technique called approval testing as well, which is uh, it's also known as golden master testing or, or characterization testing. It's often used with legacy code. Or, but i find it still is useful with new development a lot of people disagree with me there, but i think it's a useful technique for new development as well
1: well well talk to us about golden master testing then so what 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 is that how do you define it
2: and well I, I prefer to call it approval testing because i think that's more descriptive of what it is it's um it's where you you have the you you write a piece of code that triggers your application to do something that exercises a unit so you still have to to do the arrange and act part of of a test you know it has to identify a piece of code, and exercise it. But um, instead of then making some assertion upfront about what it should do, you just try and gather what it's done or, or trigger it to print what it's done in, in some kind of text format, preferably. So uh, if, if you're f- testing a function that produces an, a- an API that produces a REST document or a bit of XML or something, that's already producing a kind of a text representation. But if it's producing some kind of object, you might need to write a printer that would print that object. Um, print the state of, of uh, the, the unit. And you uh, use that as a basis for, OK, um, I'll, I'll look at that. Does that text represent all the aspects of what that thing did that I'm interested in? Does it show all the important outputs? And if it does, um, and the outputs look correct, then you approve that. Say, OK, this, this is what I want to see. And then you preserve that as a in a file. And the next time you run that test, it will just compare the output against that recorded approved version of that text. As long as it matches, the test passes. The approval part of it is the crucial part. I have to read it and check it looks right.
1: Mm, I see. And so why do people, why why do you think some people are against that then?
2: Well, because you can't define it before you've, um, up front. So with test-driven development, you're supposed to write the test first and then do the implementation. But because your approval test is always based on actual outputs, you don't calculate the output in advance. You, you can't complete the test until the code is finished in some way.
1: But I think that's to the point of actually satisfying the user, isn't it? So that you can't be necessarily pure about all of these things, I guess.
2: <laughs> yeah. The other thing about the approval test is usually the units are a bit larger than in classic TDD, and the output is similar between tests. So um, what happens in in normal unit tests is that each test has like a handful of assertions, maybe one. And when uh, you've got 10 tests, something goes wrong, one fails. Because they're so targeted. With an approval testing approach, um, for a start, your unit's bigger. So you might only have one test instead of 10. And, uh, but if you did have more than one test, they might all fail together. Uh, particularly if they use the same, based on the same output or the same object or the same object state. They're more coupled. So people, some people see that's an anti-pattern, that the tests are more coupled Um, And they tend to fail together. But in my experience, that is not a problem. (laughs) So
1: uh... I think that's really interesting because, I mean, I'm I'm doing uh, some work with a client at the moment that has multiple brands. And so they basically have a white label almost that they produce and it gets configured to become, you know, a different brand. It feels like you could, if you're feeding something with configuration, your approval testing can almost go, well, I've now got six brands that I've created from this one thing that I have built and is well tested. But now what I actually want to do is test that all of the brands meet all of their config. And that seems like a potentially good application for approval testing.
2: Um, yeah. If it's in...
1: <laughs> you don't yeah, sound yeah. convinced.
2: <laughs> I don't, well, I don't know all the details of this. No, no, sure. Um, how... <laughs> Once you've taken your white, so you it's, it sounds like a function though, pure function where you take a white label version, you apply the customer config, and you get a customer configured version that looks different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, as long as it looks the same after you've refactored what's in the middle, mm-hmm. then you're you're good. Yeah, that sounds like you could do that with an approval test, one for each of the six brands, and then possibly multiplied by how many different configuration options you have.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's the that's the challenge with the with a you know, a challenge like that where you are producing a white label that can be configured many, many times. You could, your tests increase, not exponentially, but they do increase pretty rapidly depending on how many brands you're going to add and how many configuration options you've got. So, you know, you've got to find a a clever way of scaling that testing.
2: Yes, and the the approval testing way is perhaps to um, have a lot of tests that look very similar. They just tweak a few configuration options, whereas the unit test would be like, Okay, I'm just going to tweak that configuration option and check that that one thing changes. So they're much more targeted, but it gives just a different trade off. The unit tests, if you change this configuration option, they'll assert that that thing changes, but they might miss all the other five things that changes unexpectedly. Whereas your approval test would find that because it would be testing everything. So um, I find that a good trade off, that I'm more likely to find bugs with the approval tests. And I have ways to manage the facts. I have tools that help me manage the fact that I get multiple failures whenever I change something.
1: Do you have any particular tools that you sort of recommend or do you have to skip between the tools depending on what sort of language it is that you're using?
2: Um, So I use two main tools that I prefer. One is um, uh, approvaltests.com, which has got implementations in many different programming languages of the same framework. And Llewellyn Falco, who invented... Approval approvals frameworks, is still an active maintainer of most of those. And I've been involved in a few of them. Um, so I'm one of the open source maintainers for some of those. And the other tool that I use a lot is called text to test which uh, was originally developed by my husband. Um, and I've been using it for the past um, 20 years, maybe. And uh, that was language agnostic. You can test a program written in any language, as long as it can produce plain text.
1: That's cool. I think I'm going to have to go and check those out, as should the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're uh, when you're skipping between languages, though, I mean, how easy or difficult do you find that? Well,
2: I like I like programming in different languages because, <laughs> I mean, I started out with uh, C plus plus and then very quickly went to Java and Python, and um, over the years I've done some Scala in anger, and then I just find that with that. Just between Python and Java as a background, um, I have enough different ways of thinking about programming that new languages, I don't know, I seem to pick them up quite easily. So I enjoy it.
1: Have you developed a favourite over, over time? or or a, Actually, I'm going to ask you this question both ways. Have you developed a favourite and have you developed a hatred for one in particular?
2: <laughs> oh, well, my favourite is Python. It has been for ever since I picked it up, basically. I just find it so... Uh, straightforward to understand but yet you know it's you keep digging and there's more to it and you can write things really elegantly in python and concisely but it's still accessible to beginners so yeah i really like python uh and things i've hate i thought i was going to hate c but then i started doing some more c lately i've done it um i've been coaching several teams and actually there is an elegance to it and a simplicity to it i quite i'm getting quite fond of c actually so
1: there isn't one that you actually hate so you will quite happily go in any language
2: pretty much i'm having trouble thinking of anything i would hate yeah. how
1: do you feel about php or uh... <laughs> so i'm antagonizing the listeners now oh, <laughs> i know <laughs> php
2: has got gets a lot of bad rap um i have to say i haven't done a lot myself but i have a colleague um, who i really respect uh and he did a lot of php and has explained to me that you can you can do all the great stuff in php and he's a, he's a fantastic programmer so i i I wouldn't rule it out that I would like PHP too. There you go.
0: I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your book that you've released recent, fairly recently, right? In... Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. There you
0: go. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk to us about that. That's on the same vein as um, technical project management, but the Salmon
2: style? Yeah, so the title of the book is Technical Agile Coaching with the Salmon Method. And uh, it's about the, the method I use. For technical coaching, it's encouraging people to think. Well, if you're a software developer who you know this stuff and you want to spread it, this is some coaching techniques you could use. That's what the book is about, basically. And this is what works for me. This is why I think it works, and uh, you should try this.
0: Mm. So obviously, Salmon Method is is probably I, I'm. It's the first time I'm hearing it, and obviously we've we've learned a tremendous about a bit about it today. There's obviously going to be some coverage of the Salmon m- Method. How are, you, how are you then differentiating that within your book? Are you, are you coming at it from a slight different perspective? Are you introducing other aspects of things you've learned along the way? Like wh- where is your, where's your angle on it?
2: Well, I mean, I came up with the name Saman. ah, uh, oh, there we go. Yeah, so it's a Swedish word that means together. And I wanted to name my coaching method uh, something that would, you, know, you could search for on the internet and that would distinguish it from other ways of doing technical coaching. I mean, there's there's every technical coach has their own way of doing things, really. And, and uh, a lot of um, technical coaches combine it with more general agile coaching. But I realised that what I was doing was a bit different. I, I try and stay on points with the developers and leave the rest of the coaching to someone who's better at that. I mean, I guess it just kind of springs from the observation that for, for developers who I know who are really good at TDD and technical practices... Generally, they've learned that through either pair programming with someone who knows that and usually combined with practicing on code cutters. So it, th- those two aspects seem to be there in, in most of the successful uh, practitioners that I know. So the SAMAN method is basically trying to scale that up to, OK, can we help a whole team to learn these technical practices? OK, well, we'll scale up pair programming to ensemble working and we'll scale up individual practice on code cutters to... Let's have more formal learning sessions, teaching sessions, where we have targeted cutters uh, and we talk about techniques and try and learn those things more effectively. That's the basis of it.
0: Sounds really exciting because off off the top of the head, I can think of tons of people who would who would benefit from this. And if, I mean, Chris, you seem to express this the similar sort of thought around technical agile coaches being needed. It sounds like an invaluable resource, so it's uh, it will be interesting to see how that um, that pans out and stuff. And so you're saying everything we've spoken about almost up until this point has been this salmon method, right?
2: Yeah, basically, it's it's my name for what I do, um, and it's uh, and the book describes it in a lot of detail, and. Uh, there's a website as well. I mean, you mentioned my blog earlier. Uh, I haven't written a lot on my blog lately.
0: Busy writing a book. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. <laughs>
2: yeah. But uh, samancoaching.org is the website that goes with the book. If you uh, are interested in doing technical coaching or perhaps you're already doing it, there's resources there that you can uh, find code cutters and, and um, exercises and yeah, stuff like that.
1: I haven't got the book yet, but I will. Oh. And I think it looks um it, it, it looks really good because I think there's um you know, it it for me as someone who's done, you know, a technical agile coach sort of role, certainly don't think as deep as as you've gone. It looks like it will fill in a lot of gaps for me. And I think, you know, that would be a really great thing to provide a more rounded experience. So if there's anyone out there that's that's doing something similar, then uh, this looks like it's gonna give you a lot more uh a, a lot more tools for your toolbox because Agile is all about tools for the toolbox, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: And making them your own as well, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who,
0: who do you think this book is more tailored towards? Are, are you trying to empower, like, managers or sort of CEOs to see it or is it is it for the developers to actually empower themselves, if that makes sense?
2: So I am i don't expect this book to be read by managers and um I mean, they might read the, the first chapter to find out what it is that it's all about. But no, I've written it for people who are software developers, people who uh, perhaps who are some kind of tech lead or architect or technical leader and are, are want to promote better technical practices, better culture of, of writing tests and so on in their organisation. or And also for consultants who uh, work with a lot of organisations and, and need effective ways to uh, promote change
0: actually to be fair those are the people that came into my mind when I saw the the book and what it was about is like it, it, it would be great for more agile coaches to embrace that and and spread it because it alludes to probably your first question that you asked chris around how do people take to this you know essentially being Told to do something new or do something different, you know, it's a touchy subject. And uh, if there, there are more softer ways to introduce that, and
1: more, um... well, we can be a, we can be a stubborn bunch, can't we, as developers? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. But with the book like this, they can read it in their own time. They can they can really form formulate, you know, these ideas in their head and come to accept it rather than the kind of being told by someone towering over them. So. Um
2: oh yeah don't do that yeah no
0: of course you know but it can feel like that you know and, and and where that stubbornness probably comes from is that defensive guard
2: yeah but i mean developers are very highly educated and very opinionated uh but also intelligent enough to realize that if someone shows you a better way to do something and you realize that it is a better way to do something and you could learn that and and you know developers will will learn that um
1: even if it sometimes takes them a day to process.
2: Oh, they come yeah. back
1: the following day and go, yeah, so I've thought about what you said and you are right. <laughs> <laughs> but those on a few, a few occasions.
0: Has <laughs> this got given you the bug of writing a book and exploring this this methodology more? Is it, has writing the book even taught you a little bit about your methods and you've you've got
2: some new ideas that you want to improve on or anything like that? Of course. So I mean, writing the book forced me to really think through what it is I do and why I do it. Of course, the way I'm working also evolves. Uh, so some of the things I wrote in the book about, you know, what I do, I've already started to change. So some um, uh, there's it's always a working process of, of learning better ways to help people and, and to promote to good technical culture. But I, I do enjoy writing. And um, I realise now that what we were talking about before with the approval testing, I've written a bit about that, but it's still, it's a technique which is not known enough. And I think a book about that would probably probably help. So that's kind of on my horizon that I think I do want to write a book about that at some point.
0: There you go. Stay tuned for that one.
2: Yeah. Although it's going to take me a few years, I think. So,
1: So there's one thing that you... You've got on your on your blog, which I want to ask you about, but I don't see it in your chapter list on your on your for your book, which is Conway's Law. Is there is there something is there anything you touch on in, in the book there? Or can you talk to us a bit more about like making sure code is in the right areas to be successful, teams are in the right structure, et cetera?
2: Oh, that's it's so important. Um aligning your architecture and your team structure and, and um getting the which parts of the code each team has to change. Yeah, this is important, but honestly I haven't I haven't worked on that so much as a technical coach. I think it is important, but I haven't. I've I've been so focused on individual teams and their problems that I haven't been so focused on organisations and and groups of teams and their problems. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I read team topologies and I thought that they had some great solutions there. So I would would love the opportunity to apply some of those techniques. But honestly, I haven't had those conversations with organisations. It's all been team level. And accepting the organisation that I've come into rather than trying to change that.
0: Mm-hmm. Anything more that you wanted to chat about, Emily, before we sort of wrap up?
2: Oh, that's very kind of you to, to ask. I, um, we've already talked about my book and the website that goes with it, sammancoaching.org. I also wanted to mention, I am actually starting up a new training course in approval testing in the new year with O'Reilly. In case anyone's interested to, to try that out.
0: And is that an in-person course or is that because I noticed you've done some you've written some is it udemy or, or some training platform there? so is this an in-person one or an online course that you're?
2: Oh, it's an online course. so so I did plural sites. there's a course on unit testing in Python. It's a few years old now, but it's, I think it's still good. But no the O'Reilly course it's just half a day online so far, and I've got a longer version of it that I also offer, not through O'Reilly. but yeah, I'm doing basically everything remote these days.
0: It's the only way. So anyway, um, and uh, sorry, is that written? And you're you're waiting just to publish it, or is it already published? Or uh,
2: so it's an interactive training, and the first date is in January. Um, oh, cool! But I don't think they've put it up on the website yet because I only just signed the contract. So
0: ah, so look for look for that in January then. That's amazing. Thank you for your time, Emily. Yeah, thank, thank, you, thank you for you. having
2: me. It's been great conversation.